Why is it that no, literally no country, no company in the world wants climate change? No, nobody is like, climate change is the world that I want. But we're orienting to it so fast and we can't stop and nobody can stop it. Because we all want stuff that requires energy that is driving that thing. And nobody wants species extinction and nobody really wants to live in a world with automated AI weapons, but we're all racing to build them. So what the fuck is actually driving the world to a world that literally nobody wants? All right, Alex, what is Daniel Schmachtenberger talking about? What are these forces that are driving us all to a world that none of us actually want? Well, what Daniel Schmachtenberger is gesturing at is something called a multipolar trap. It's a phenomenon whereby individual incentives conflict with collective incentives, such that each action, each decision along the way for the individual might seem rational, but the end result is a situation where everyone is worse off. It's a force of game theory, of economics, that perpetuates itself almost like an agent. Hmm. Uh, so one of my favorite analogies, one of my favorite descriptions of this force is by a guy named Scott Alexander, who wrote a blog post called Meditations on Moloch, which I highly recommend every single person listening to this read. It's a fantastic read. Uh, but he likens this force to the, uh, the, uh, the, the demon Moloch in Allen Ginsberg's poem, Howl. So it's kind of a more general form of tragedy of the commons. And while both the tragedy of the commons and these multipolar traps indicate a failure of coordination, the tragedy of the commons deals exclusively with the exhaustion of resources, whereas this multipolar trap deals with any situation whereby we trade away value X for resource Y. Now, this is a lot of abstract stuff. So to give you a few concrete examples of, uh, to kind of illustrate this phenomenon, uh, an example from nature would be a boom bust cycle. Imagine a forest populated with foxes and rabbits. And at some point, uh, the foxes start to overpopulate the rabbits. Let's say they have a freakishly large litter someday, or the rabbits uh, have a disease that wipes out a, little, a significant number of their population. And so the foxes continue to, uh, uh, the foxes, the foxes uh, multiply faster. Um, the, uh, and then they start to eat more rabbits, but then they exhaust the rabbit population. And then the foxes all starve to death and their population dwindles down to a more sustainable level and the rabbits repopulate in this never-ending cycle that they get stuck in. And from a bird's eye view, you would think, okay, well, they should just regulate their birth rates so they don't end up in this situation. Right. Uh, when are they stupid? Like, what are they damn foxes? Haven't, haven't they figured this out yet? <laughs> now, you might be tempted to think, oh, well, humans can at least figure it out, right? Wrong. Wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Some examples from humans um, are, uh, well, the most obvious example would be something like uh, nuclear warfare or mm -hmm. bioweapons development, mm -hmm. AI development, where every country uh, 
is incentivized to create these weapons. Nobody wants to live in a world in which we are proliferated with nuclear weapons or dangerous AI and bioweapons. But if you don't build it, build your bioweapon, your nuclear warhead, then you are at risk of being destroyed or outcompeted in other ways by the people that decide to do that. And everyone knows this. And everyone knows that everyone knows this. So you have this pressure, this, this, this landscape of incentives uh, that just like river naturally takes the, takes the path of least resistance downhill, you can always pre predict that people will follow the landscape of incentives. Yeah, Another yeah, no, it's... Uh, no, okay. I was going to say just yeah. real quick, um, it's basically, you know, this idea of multipolar traps, you know, you could summarize it as a situation in which the incentives are aligned such that what is in an individual self-interest, uh, what is in the uh, self-interest of all individuals in that situation leads to a collective harm or, or sort of self-destruction of that situation or system right? right um and and i think you know to to kind of continue on these examples you know social media is a great one you know the, this whole attention economy where um if instagram or, or once you know tiktok starts you know creating these these short videos then instagram has to produce their reels youtube has to get their shorts in uh, and now it's a race to the bottom uh, and everyone's worse off for it, even though for those individual actors, those individual social media companies, that was the optimal thing to do if you are maximizing profit, which is the underlying incentive structure in our society. And I also think that's why this statement, everybody's worse off, isn't 100% like accurate in capturing what's happening. I mean, there are the majority of people are worse off, but there's a small percentage of people that are benefiting from these sorts of like arms races quote unquote happening well so here's industries. so okay so you're you're sort of right but you're also sort of wrong because it, it depends on you know where are you stopping you know in in this timeline right like yes at the moment that is the case like a few a few parties are benefiting but in the long run if that leads to the collapse of civilization which it entirely could you know given the level of polarization we've seen for example from from these social media uh, uh, platforms, um, it, it, it's possible that in the long run, literally no one is is better off. Hey guys, uh, I'm Levon with my beautiful co-host Andre, and if you're enjoying this episode with Alex, make sure to give us a like on YouTube. Please, please subscribe to get the latest um, content from Radius of Reason, and leave us a comment in the comment section. Also reach out to us on our social channel on X, radius underscore of. It doesn't even have to require the collapse of civilization. Like, for example, climate change, mm -hmm. which as catastrophic of a risk as that is, it's, it's unlikely to collapse civilization, but it will have a cascading effect on the economy, uh, on the global economy, and make everything more difficult, more expensive at the very least. And so... It's in the collective interest of everyone, including the big oil mongols, mongols, however you pronounce that, to prevent climate change from occurring. Uh, but in the short term, it's more beneficial for them to uh, extract, 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 and mm -hmm. uh, produce, 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 even if they themselves will be harmed by the uh, 
long-term consequences. And, and I'm, I'm glad you started out like your explanation with a reference to the animal kingdom. And there's, it seems like in nature, oftentimes there are a series of kind of natural checks put into place to prevent these sorts of crises from really kind of unfolding to their full destructive potential. Um, you know, be it caps on how much an ecosystem can sustain like a particular species of foxes or um, pandemics that wipe out percentages of animal populations and whatnot. But it seems that humans have somehow been uniquely positioned to dodge a lot of these natural checks. And I think the blog post you referenced may, may take that into account, but I'd be curious to hear from your end, like what is it about humanity that has driven us to this potential to, to sort of miss those loops of natural checks that are in place by nature to prevent these things from happening. Yeah, absolutely. That's a very good point there. You definitely see this incentive landscape occur in nature. And it's actually a, a great example of why evolution is a very stupid process in a lot of ways. Because <laughs> it, 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 uh, it, it, it has not done anything to necessarily solve this problem. Because a lot mm -hmm. of species do, in fact, go extinct because of these kinds of issues of overpopulation or uh, improper resource management or the inability to adapt. But humans are, you are absolutely also correct that humans are very unique in that we have created this exponential technology economy where our technology, unlike the technology of ants or primates, where they, they have some technologies, like, you know, ants make anthills, primates use very rudimentary tools, but humanity makes nukes and bioweapons and self-improving AI and all these things make it easier to create new things. And we can think abstractly about these things in such a way that allows us to improve on the designs of others and faster and faster and faster. So we, thanks to our... Uh, intelligence, uh, for lack of a better word, uh, we have managed to outstrip the limitations that nature has imposed upon most other animals. What opposable thumbs does to a motherfucker? Yeah, man. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's funny. Uh, you know, Daniel Schmachtenberger kind of talks about how you know the, humans aren't apex predators, right? Like a polar bear can only like do so much damage to other species and the environment. Um, and, and so, uh, or, or like an orca can only, you know, it, it can't overfish the oceans. Right. Um, and, and so we, with our exponential technologies, we have kind of <clears throat> approached a point where he calls, you know, us, uh, we have approached planetary boundaries in terms of the damage that we're doing, uh, in terms of, you know, the, the depletion of topsoil, microplastics, uh, you know, carbon emissions, et cetera. So it, it, is, um, it is a unique scenario that we find ourselves in. And, you know, he, he, likes to, he likes to use that phrase, you know, we cannot run an exponential economy on a finite planet. So, so Alex, maybe you can kind of dive into that a little bit, maybe go into more details into, into why that's a, that's a problem. Yeah, well, it's... I don't really know if there's a whole lot to say on it, but the fact that if you have a, a finite amount of resources, then you will always be pressured to compete for those resources. That's a pretty standard premise right there. And then when you have 
finite resources that can only increase linearly. When you have a technology for extraction of those resources that increases exponentially, you can, you get to a point where you start to very quickly outstrip the number of resources that you have. And once you, once you hit that disconnect, it becomes much harder to go back and it becomes much harder to undo the damage. And you have a lot less time to, to figure out the problem when you might need a lot more time um, to figure out all the potential solutions. And I'm, I'm sure we'll get into potential solutions here in a bit, but mm-hmm. they all definitely require a lot of time, unfortunately. So, so I guess yeah. let, let's be clear, right? Capitalism is unsustainable. <laughs> I mean, the idea of like constant growth is obvious. Like everyone has an intuition. I know when I was growing up, you know, I thought like, this is crazy. Like we can't, like, where are we putting all the trash? Like what yeah. the hell is going? It was obviously unsustainable, but it's kind of brushed off to the side because some people in power who control a lot of what's happening, uh, well, they want to remain in power, right? Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty disheartening to, yeah, and to connect I, those I've, dots. I, I consider myself a pretty big fan of capitalism, all things considered. It is the, get economy. off the show. Done. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> it is the economy. It's the kind of <clears throat> economic system that has best re- re- uh, catapulted humanity into progress and lifted more people out of poverty than any other system in history. Is it the best though, if it leads to the extinction uh, of humanity? Yeah, it's, it it's back to, to like the environmental TikTok collapse. Point, yeah, yeah, for sure. It's definitely a, a good question. Like, what are what? How do the long term effects impact the value of the system? And that kind of leads me to the new my nuanced take on capitalism, and that is. It is definitely it definitely has problems, and it has existential problems that need to be addressed and grappled with, and it potentially needs to be done away with in favor of a different system altogether. Well, and and I think that like b- before we start arguing for the sake of like a total like deconstruction of our society as we know it, it, it does seem that we're <laughs> in, in a unique window of capitalism. I guess like we'd call it finance capitalism or something where. There is an absolute lack of checks placed on it, and there's no market regulation for the most part, which is allowing it to kind of take off into this escalating snowball effect of just innovating for the sake of innovating as opposed to maybe doing it in the interest of humanity, so to speak. Andre, do you think that's linked to, you know, the the moment that, you know, we kind of all transition to like a fiat currency and we're not backed by gold or some natural resource that just it's allowed part things of that. to escape. Okay. I, I think I think it would be a you know a little oversimplified just to say it's because of one thing it's a, it's a multifaceted phenomenon. Right. But yeah, it's the fiat currency. It's the fact that we have no competing economic model in the world. You know, once the Soviet Union collapsed, you really didn't need to have a strong incentive for social programs in, in the United States at least because there wasn't a threat of an alternative to take hold. Where you know a lot of the successes of the New Deal were implemented because there is a fear that communism would take hold in the U.S. So you lost that kind of factor of competition. Alex, sorry, I interrupted you. Hey guys, if you're enjoying the show, don't forget to hit subscribe, like, and comment. Help us promote the Meta Crisis um, to the world. So, but yes, especially don't forget to hit subscribe. <laughs>
<laughs> oh, no, that's a great point. I just wanted to add another potential idea to that. And that is the idea of currency in general. It's, it's an abstraction of value. And unfortunately, when you abstract away value, then you, you tend to lose a lot of different types of value that can't quite be captured in a quantifiable way. Like the, the value of art, of creative expression, of mindfulness, of, of, of community and culture and meaning. You can't really capture that in a dollar in the same way that you can capture a half hour's worth of manual labor. Mm-hmm. And in a world in which we care about those things and in a world in which those things would help prevent the uh, looming crises that we face, uh, capitalism is, is definitely leading the, way on, uh, leading the way to our extinction in a lot of ways. Well, and I'm curious, you mentioned this notion of a looming crisis, right? And again, like maybe the cultural foundation of re-understanding this kind of like curse of Moloch or whatever. You mentioned Allen Ginsberg's poem that was written like towards the latter years of the Beat Generation. But let's say like in the previous century, like when was Howl written, like the 60s or something like that. The like Like... Is there something unique about our current generational position where the crisis is indeed looming as opposed to being some off in the distance type of phenomenon that we can write about and think about? Or is it actually a pressing consequence that our generation is going to have to face down, making this whole notion of a meta crisis, of the curse of Moloch, something uniquely consequential to our place and time? Yeah, to specifically answer the question about timescales. Toby Ord has a fantastic book called The Precipice, in which he analyzes all the various potential existential threats that humanity faces uh, and all the ways in which they will interact with each other. And he concludes that there is a roughly 20% chance, one in five chance, that we will go extinct within the next 100 years. And... That is, that's, I would defer to his calculations on that. It's a fantastic book. Um, (laughs) I recommend it to everyone that is interested in these kinds of things, if you're prepared to be a little depressed afterwards. Um, But yes, there definitely seems to be a, uh, it definitely seems to be looming in a way that it has not yet before. And it's another problem though with trying to predict these timescales is we're predicting exponential, an exponential economy. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm sure you guys have heard about, have you guys heard about the lily pad thought experiment in lily pads upon? Mm-hmm. Break it down for us though. Okay. Yeah. But for the listeners, um, there's a thought experiment where you are given a pod and there are lily pads. It's lily, there's, a, there's a single lily pad in this pond and every single day it doubles in size. And let's say in um, uh, three hundred, it'll it'll be it'll be filled in three hundred days. Mm-hmm. You are then asked, at what day is the lily pot, is the is the uh, is the pond halfway full? A lot of people attempted to say, okay, well, if it's three hundred days, then obviously one hundred and fifty days, and it'll be halfway full. Wrong. It'll be halfway full at day two hundred and ninety nine because it doubles and the lily pads double every day. Mm-hmm. 
And that is the unintuitive nature of exponential growth. You end up, yeah, everything seems fine <laughs> for a very long time until that last day you are you you get hit out of the blue with a train of progress that you did not foresee. And since we as a, as a exponential economy, there is going to be a day before uh, that that during which that technology increases just so quickly that it just it completely takes us by surprise. And I think we saw and, it actually. I, I think maybe the Lilypad effect came into play in November of 2022 when all these AI models were, were rapidly deployed onto the market. Um, where nobody, aside from you know a couple of nuanced market researchers, were talking about conversational AI, Gen AI, the threat of like an AI assistant in a coding function, and then once OpenAI kind of dropped their product onto the market, it does seem like everything kind of just like within a month became hyper focused on that, and we're seeing all of these like rapid innovations. Mm -hmm happening at a almost a day-to-day -day pace. I mean, look at, there's some great like comparisons um, of what MidJourney was able to do in yeah. December of 2022 and what MidJourney is able to do January of 2024. I mean, night and day difference. Yeah, absolutely. And that that's just a taste though. Like that's, that's, that's an example of, of how it's already happening. Mm -hmm. And as technology increases and things get more and more exponential, things will take us more and more by surprise. Hmm. And it's going to be harder and harder to predict the speed of things, which is uh, why you get people like me who uh, are all about, you know, slowing down AI progress um, <laughs> and, and, and trying to pump the brakes on things. As much as I love progress, I, uh, I like being alive and healthy more. <laughs> yet you know it, it's again like you mentioned ai is an example of the of the multipolar trap and that's why we, we can't like we can't stop it like the profit incentives the fact that other countries are developing it um it is in all parties self-interest to uh, at least thus far um it is to continue developing it but i mm -hmm. think I think at some point we will realize, you know, with the deployment of like, say, auto autonomous AI drones, um, like we, we may come to a realization where we need uh, collective action. And, and, and so I think that is a good segue to discuss, you know, what are potential solutions to these multipolar traps? And the, the one thing that I found comforting is that it is possible to solve these traps. Uh, even if we don't have answers yet, uh, it is possible. And there are historical examples of this. So um, I, I want to mention nuclear weapons first, mm -hmm. but I know it's not it's not something that's been completely solved. In fact, uh, you know, due to the proliferation of nuclear weapons, we are potentially even in, in a more difficult situation. But, you know, because of mutually assured destruction, um, nothing's happened thus far. And so from a game theoretic standpoint, Due to people's realization of the magnitude of the danger of nuclear weapons, we have sort of reached a steady state for now. Of course, you know, that, that can change at any moment. Um, but 
you know that that is one example where um, people's realization can can lead to um, can lead to some changes in the incentive structures in in, in the minds of, of all those parties involved. Um, another example is the Montreal Protocol, which was an international treaty, right, that helped um, us contain the ozone depletion issue, actually reverse it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then another example that I ran across recently, which I didn't know about this, but in the UK, they abolished slavery uh, without a civil war. So, so somehow they peacefully kind of solved a multipolar trap, um, which, you know, in America, we, we couldn't know without a lot of bloodshed so um, i find that to be comforting but um are 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 these examples kind of uh sufficient alex uh, to to give you confidence in our abilities or do you think um you know they are kind of anomalies and 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 yeah i think they um to use to use bayesian terms i think they are they help update me in the direction of optimism. <laughs> However, they definitely aren't sufficient on, on, on their own uh, to take them one at a time. Nuclear weapons, proliferation. Um, the only real solution to the, the issue of nuclear weapons is to prevent them from ever being made again and wipe them off the face of the planet and remove all knowledge of how to create them and how to uh, reverse engineer them again well i mean quick caveat to that and i i just like to hear your opinion um mm-hmm. before nuclear weapons we had two wars on a global scale where you know yeah. you had entire generations of men wiped off the face of the earth during battle you had generations of civilian populations men women and children killed in the, in the millions and Ever since 1945, with the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, where that destructive potential was really kind of unfolded for the world to see, we haven't had a conflict on that scale. So is there room to consider nuclear weapons as actually a deterrent factor to some of like the sub-meta crises that we faced in the 20th century? It definitely has. You are absolutely correct. It definitely has solved a lot of those smaller issues. the the only problem is that every year there's a cumulative probability that we just end up completely ending the game, <laughs> and that is the ultimate highest the highest stakes possible mm-hmm. that makes all of the stakes null and void. Honest in, in my in my opinion, some people might disagree with that, but I I think that the most important thing is that we are able to continue existing, so we can solve the problems. <laughs> Um, and I, I don't think we can do that if we end up nuking. You're, you're starting today. to sound like the Unabomber a little bit. I, <laughs> I mean, I was going to reference Ted Kaczynski at some point. Um. <laughs> There's no danger of that, I assure you. But um, it, it definitely concerns me. And um, I, I would say it's still not an ideal, whatever your opinions on that matter, it's still not an ideal world to live in where we are constantly dealing with the underlying threat of nuclear war. That's, that's, not, a world, that's not a world anyone wants to live in. Valid. And yet we live in that world when we could all coordinate somehow to not live in that world. But we do not. Okay. What about um, the Montreal Protocol? The, the Montreal, 
yeah, the Montreal Protocol is my favorite of those three. <laughs> um, and that is definitely an exa- a great example of international cooperation. And I would love to see something like that for the meta crisis. Um, the slight issue with that is it was a vi- there was the the problem was very visible. It was a hole in the ozone layer. You could just aim your scientific instruments at the ozone layer, see the freaking hole above the above Antarctica, um, and and point at it. And then to fix it, you just had to regulate a very narrow class of substances. Mm. And I, which, I think. Yeah. So, sorry to cut you off, Alex. But yeah. I, I I really think like this. You you just illustrated the big problem, right? Like we need to see like absolutely clear evidence that's in our face, undeniable to mm-hmm. act. And the problem that Daniel Schmachtenberger so vividly uh, illus- uh, 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 illustrates for us is, is that with exponential technology, it's going to be too late, right? Like. Um, with nuclear weapons, like by the time, uh, you know, we, we reach a nuclear winter, like it's too late to act by the time AI has, uh, let's say collapsed the, you know, financial system or AI weapon systems have been deployed and are uncontrollable. Like it's too late bioweapons. It's too late to like, you know, have a, a pandemic that is 100 X COVID. Like it's too late to act at that point. Um, and, and so he, what, so what Daniel Schmachtenberger proposes when it comes to solutions is we, we need solutions at the scale of the issues. So when you talk about, um, you know, overfishing the oceans or polluting the oceans, uh, you, you can't just have a single country, you know, act and say, oh, we're not going to do this. Uh, you need governance at the scale of the issues. And that leads to. What is very frightening for many people, a global government. But <laughs> what I think the great thing One that Daniel Schmachtenberger, yeah. right? <laughs> so, so I think the great thing that Daniel Schmachtenberger does is he he really he really tries to thread the needle on this because uh, he refers to this system um, that kind of is a solution to these multipolar traps as the third attractor, uh, and he defines it as Basically, a system that has checks on itself, preventing total consolidation of power, uh, that is, does not have centralized power, but still has efficacy as a force of governance. But to me, you know, that kind of sounds like a contradiction. So what, how, how do you thread that needle? Yeah, I mean, if, if only we could wave our magic wand and create the perfect <laughs> government that we've been trying to create for the past to seven millennia, 10 millennia, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that'd be great. Um, But I I do agree that our systems do need to be be overhauled and there needs to be a system of governance and some kind of economy that uh, is both agile in that it can respond to things without also falling prey to all the failure modes of uh, centralized governments that we've seen. And that's tough. I don't actually, I don't have the answer to that. Um, I you haven't think... solved the meta crisis, bro. What? Why the hell did we invite I, I, I you on here? I hate to you that I don't have the, the, the one solution to all of this um, to put Daniel Schmachtenberger out of business. I do have 
ideas on the individual level, because ultimately this is a trap for individuals. Like, despite the fact that this is a global scale phenomenon, a global scale issue, it's a trap that all the individuals in the system are falling into. Hmm. And that is what's causing the problems. So every step along the way, we are making decisions that seem rational to us, like uh, buying stuff on Amazon or um, eating factory farmed animals uh, or taking unnecessary plane trips around the world. I don't know. Take your pick of all the various potential harmful individual actions that seem rational and negligible on the individual scale, but accumulate into creating these, these big issues. That mm-hmm. Have. Mm-hmm. And the only way to, to really resolve that besides passing sweeping legislation and overhauling our economic and governmental systems is to somehow foster a better culture of long-term vision and uh, just and better wisdom, basically, a culture where people are incentivized and, and where their status is gained from being better individuals and more wise individuals. Um, we've talked a little bit about this, and I think Daniel Schmachtenberger uh, talked about this in his uh, in one of those conversations uh, you linked, Levon, where we where, where people. Are, we need to create hyper agents, basically. People who are both wise and powerful, they are able to make the right decisions and make the most effective decisions that have far sweeping uh, implications for broader society. Yeah, I, I think, um, Andre, if, if you um, let me, if you let me uh, speak for a moment, uh, <laughs> what? <laughs> No, I I just I just want to double down on why, like, you know, having a cultural enlightenment, which is kind of what you're referring to, Alex, is so difficult because we we have such strong incentives. Right. And we've seen with social media that, you know, what makes us angry and polarized is what gets, you know, thrown to the top of our social media feeds. Um, And so it is very difficult to hope that there is a broad cultural shift that then initiates kind of um, uh, a, a new government overnight type of thing. You you do need these hyper agents, which are, are people that kind of have disproportionate influence, um, but are also aligned with the collective good to hopefully... Um, get the ball rolling by passing maybe key pieces of legislation, right? Um, and then you wa- what you hope at that point is a cycle of um, <clears throat> of cultural enlightenment, and then more more hyper agents or more people in government that are aware of these problems, uh, and you know they they prioritize the education system. And slowly, you know, through this kind of cyclical process, we reach a a, a significantly uh, more enlightened state in our culture that that really then has all the weapons and all the political willpower to address these multipolar traps. It, it right? almost sounds like you're describing some sort of like North Korea type of scenario, though. 
where there is <laughs> like a Kim Jong Un type of character that descends down onto the United States and no, brings no, about like not. an enlightened Juche society. But I, I, honestly, like I don't that's think not what I'm saying at all. Though, hold on, that I, I don't know if that was a joke. But that's not what I mean, I'm saying. the the um, what was the concept of a, the hyper agent? I, yeah, I think yeah. that would never be feasible in any form of like democratic arrangement. Um, and maybe North Korea is too harsh of an example, but it sounds like basically a philosopher king is being described. No, 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 no. It, it, it's not someone who is necessarily um, in like the highest political office. Um, we're talking about someone who simply someone or a you know a group of hyper agents that are kind of aligned against these multipolar traps and, and whatever quick example perhaps yeah go ahead, uh, go ahead. andre andre have you read the dune series uh, i've read oh, the first book well, this first. so, so we you, need a more deep or something like that then. Yeah, do you do you remember the bene Gesserit? yeah of course yeah yeah they are basically hyper agents oh god uh, they are they are an example of, of a, they, were, they were an extreme example of a hyper agent. Yeah. They've developed like psychic powers and precognition yeah. and stuff. But the idea of individual, just regular people who have honed their skills and knowledge, their charisma, their savviness, their 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 internal alignment, um, their ability to get things done, uh, and they've just become very well rounded hyper-competent people who have the best interests of society. Um, You're talking about Daniel Schmachtenbergers? <laughs> <laughs> no, but mm. like, no, it's, it, it, no, I, I like what you said because you, you can exam, you, you could, you could say like Daniel Schmachtenberger with political influence is a hyper agent, right? Uh, to some extent, he's already a hyper agent in the sense that he is having great influence. Um, I mean, it's relatively speaking, right? Like it, it He's no like Elon Musk. He's no like Joe Rogan at this point. Um, but if you if you could imagine someone like a, a Joe Rogan or an Elon Musk with the level of influence that they have, if they were aligned in such a way as to uh, solve the multipolar traps or shift, you know, the cultural values in such a way that would lead to solutions to these problems, um, then you have great examples of hyper agents that are not at all like you know uh king jong yeah or... it, would, it would be like jesus christ or something i mean it, it is creating this like i mean there is uh almost like a messiah-esque uh sort of thesis that's being generated here somebody that could <laughs> help us like reach a point of um understanding and awareness over where things are headed alex back to the dune reference what was the jihad that was waged like in, in like the lore <laughs> of the Dune universe against the, uh, like AI and against yeah, all technologies? It's called the Butlerian Jihad. The Butlerian where, Jihad. Yeah, where they decided no no computer should be made in the image of a of a mind or something. And, like that and that's effect. why there's no computers in uh yeah. in, in the, the world of Dune and everything is conducted through like human mathematics through the you know, influence of spice and drug. And yeah, yeah whatnot. exactly. But in a way, it does seem like we need almost some sort of like religious type movement. And I'm like really trying not to start like espousing some like cult-esque um, sort of narrative here. But it seems that we need a kind of a, a, a collective 
awareness of what's happening and, and groups of people to help guide our redevelopment into a, a, like an invigorated, more advanced civilization. The problem is that it like establishes it, like any development of that kind of social arrangement is going to happen within the parameters of our current civilization. And that's going to be a complete elite takeover. We're going to have some fucking like Harvard graduate think that they're like uh, coming out with their MBA program, you know, with a license to tell everybody how to live. And that's going to be rejected outright. And I think that's because everything does come down to, and I'm really sorry to interject this into the podcast, but it comes down to a, a clash between classes and especially as nuanced and inflamed as it is right now, there's going to be a total rejection of anybody trying to teach anybody how to live their lives. That's just kind of the reality of how we have structured our, our civilization at this point, I think. I have, wow, that was, a, I have many thoughts on all of that. Um, I would start by agreeing with the idea that we need something like religion. And in the past, that is in fact the very role that religion has played. Right. God was the hyper agent. He was, the, <laughs> he was always the one nice. that, had, that, that had that that had the the most status and the nothing nothing to gain, nothing to lose. Nobody because above. Yeah, yeah. Nobody above. He got to say, "No, you guys don't get don't kill each other. Otherwise, I'm going to torture you for eternity, or nice. whatever Metal. the alternative." Whatever, whatever, pick your religious uh, penalty here, but God or the whatever, whatever your religious deity was, was the one that kept everyone in line and made sure they didn't fall for these bad incentives. Now, that has its own problems, as we've uh, seen throughout history, but it, if for all its flaws, it solved this one problem very well. And... We're coming into an era that's very much post-religion, and we're starting to see the consequences of that. Mm -hmm. uh, the Pew Research Center has, uh, over the past several years, has tracked the growth and decline of religious affiliation, and the fastest-growing religious uh, re religious uh, demographic is the people who don't identify with any religious uh, uh, beliefs. Mm -hmm. And they estimate by within the next few decades, Christianity could could be a minority of people, which would be absolutely wild. That's never happened. It's never been the case in the in United States history. Um, and I think this, for all the ways in which I like that, as someone who is very much anti-theist in a lot of ways, I I have to cede the point that we don't have a good substitute for religion. Well, it's we consumerism. It, it would just be supplanted by, you know, mass consumption. I mean, basically it's what we have being, right it's now. Already, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. already being replaced by right. mass consumption. And we, we haven't even reached critical mass of, of uh, non-belief yet. Um, and I, I shudder to think what the world is going to look like when we completely discard all, right. any, any unifying narrative. Right. Because that's the, that's the other thing. Uh, there are still a lot of spiritual people, but, Everyone who's on a path of spirituality has their own individual path, whereas in the past, religion has had a unifying narrative. Like, for example, in Christianity again, sorry for using Christianity here, that's the one I'm most familiar with, 
they God says, if you don't believe in this particular set of tenets, again, you're going to burn in hell for eternity. Uh, so you better join. And this is why you have to join and all believe the same thing and have the same common shared knowledge and goals. And without that, everyone is scattered to the winds with no unifying narratives to unite them behind a common purpose. So if I had a religion to propose, I absolutely would totally start advocating for it. But the problem we run into is you can't just create a religion. You, you, it has to arise organically. And everyone that tries to create a religion either fails or they succeed way too well. And they end up like killing themselves with Kool-Aid. Or, or, like they end up, or they end up crashing and burning civilization uh, through political or religious uh, fract fracturing of, of society. Um, so all that to say, I think there is potential, though. I do have hope because we are currently entering a mindfulness revolution. Oh, God, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you, uh, before I continue, what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think mindfulness is fantastic. And, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's in line with, I, I think, for instance, therapy is a fantastic thing. But the emergence of, like, mindfulness and therapy talk as, like, a popular concept mm -hmm. is, like, one of the most, like, I, I don't know. Like, once you have, mm -hmm. like, Amazon deploying, like, meditation pods in their warehouses, so, like, they're mm -hmm. overworked, like, warehouse workers can sit there and be mindful for a sec like yeah. I, don't, I, I mean mm. you you've had you've had uh, capitalist exploitation of religion <laughs> and spirituality yeah. since time immemorial yeah. so that's that's not new uh, but i think more and more lay people like on the street if you talk to them well are more and more of them are both familiar with and interested in living a more mindful life living more in the moment and appreciating the, the, the little things of life. And I think that's the most important thing for us to recapture because that's what we have, again, to go back to my earlier point, that's what we've abstracted away with our mm -hmm. current economic system. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, maybe we uh, can all just become Mennonites, right? Uh, or like jo join the Amish. <laughs> I mean, really, like... No, the, well, so here, here's, here's the problem, Andre. I, I know where you're going with that, but to, to, to try to like relocalize everything, Although in theory sounds great and sustainable and you create like closed loop systems, which, which are wonderful in theory, except for the problems that we have, like um, something you can only do at economies of scale. Right. And, and, and sometimes, and I think, I think at the point that we're at right now, um, given the existential risks, it, it's almost like the solution requires um more capitalism in a certain sense like more <laughs> more of the greatest more minds being driven we have to capitalist harder that's yeah. the only way to go forward more progress consume destroy multiply i will not dis disclose any of my financial uh, investments or anything but um yes but um, I, I i do want to if i may i, I do want to go back to andre's issue with hyper agents because i think the way that Daniel Schmachtenberger defines the hyperagent is that it's not like that, you know, it's not your typical elitist that's telling you what to do because he, um, he, he defines a hyperagent as someone who's aligned with the collective good. And right now, uh, basically, these politicians are not at all aligned with the collective good because the system's reward function 
is such that uh, it is in your self-interest to behave in a self-preserving manner, not in a manner that is uh, for the collective good. Hmm. Um, now, the question is, okay, how do you change that reward function? How do you actually create these hyperagents? Um, that's very difficult. But one idea I had is because there's so many sociopaths in power, um, again, part of it is due to kind of the culture that we have today, due to the lack of transparency and how that rewards sociopathic behavior. But also, I think in general, like people that are genetically more predisposed to be sociopaths are drawn to these positions of power and are more successful at manipulating people. Um, so could we have a way of of identifying who's more or less likely to be a sociopath. And I know this gets into very tricky territory, but, you know, AI, for example, has been shown to be really fucking good at detecting cancer, right? Um, better than any human. For example, skin cancer. Uh, but what if we could put AI, you know, machine learning to good use oh, God. by having it detect Who's more or less likely to be sociopath? Yeah, there, of course. Then the question is like, who decides the algorithm? Blah blah blah. blah. Right. Ah, but yeah, I mean, at that point, it's like two steps away from like taping a yellow star to somebody's coat and having them like identified in, in society. <laughs> like, like, no, there's no way that's going to go well at all. Like, I mean, no, it, it's going to be I, exploited by a human system, and it's going to be used to to repress a particular group of people. Yeah, and what if honestly, you had a decentralized AI algorithm that? Everybody saw what data, like everyone knew what data was fed into it. Kind of like um, a blockchain. You should use the blockchain. Yeah, yeah. It's I'm just saying, like there, there are ways, there are ways around that um, with, say, blockchain technology with open source. Um, there, there's a way in theory it could be done. Like yeah. right now, yeah, I don't have the direct answer. Like yes, it, it is ripe for abuse, but so is practically every system that we have in place. And in fact, it is being abused. Um, the question valid, is, valid. the question is like, you know, this is a series that Daniel Schmachtenberger did with a guy uh, called Nate Hagen's called Bend Not Break. Like, how do we, how do we bend things, right? Like, how do we, we, we don't want a solution. Like, we don't want to propose a solution of like AI identifying sociopaths and it ends up being so abused that it actually breaks the system. Uh, that, that's what we want to avoid. But um, Alex, I know you had a few things on your mind, so I'll let you. Yeah. Get back um, to it. So I just wanted to first close the loop on. I, I know you were joking, Andre, but one one thing that people do think of when they hear about this problem, one of the first things they hear think about is isolating people into smaller groups mm -hmm. or becoming hyper local, ceding mm -hmm. uh, control to more hyper to a very hyper local set network of systems, which sounds great in theory. But that is that belongs to a class of solutions that Scott Alexander calls a walled garden, mm -hmm. and it's it's where you build a wall to keep out the barbarians, <laughs> and within which you have your perfect ecosystem. All it takes is one barbarian leaping over that wall, and then ravaging everyone who is now uh, uh, just writing poetry and has no way to defend themselves against someone who is completely sociopathic. And that is just an analogy for all the external forces that are outside the community. So let's say, for example, we have uh, my city, Kansas City, becomes a walled garden within which we have a bunch of philosopher kings ruling over everything. And we forget all the, all the incentives. But then 
Lawrence, Kansas is a bunch of barbarians who have become <laughs> lean and tough and nasty, and they've they've sacrificed all poetry and singing in favor of becoming as lean and powerful and rugged and nasty as possible. And they come over here and kill everyone, um, and then we're just bound. Uh, or to abstract this to the global level, let's say we solve every problem at the global level. And we've figured out a global economy and a global government system that resolved all, the, all these incentives. And then an asteroid strikes the planet and screws everything up. And now our economy is in the tank and everyone's on their own again. Or some other ecological disaster out of our control occurs or famine or some, some mutated virus or whatever. Uh, you can never build the walls high enough. You have to figure out how to make the system anti-fragile in the mm -hmm. words of Nassim mm -hmm. Taleb. You have to create a system that becomes stronger when put under pressure, not a system that you isolate away from the pressure. Mm -hmm. What if um, it's a walled garden uh, with like nukes? It's like Spartans. <laughs> yeah, just... yeah. More nukes. That's the answer. More capitalism, more nukes. This is the law. Nobody wants to go in that garden. It's yeah. like, no, we... we mm -mm. Yeah. There's, a, there's a bunch of poets with nukes. <laughs> yeah. Anti-matter rifles and everything, uh, but yeah, no, that's it's it's a great idea uh, in theory, but it it you can't rely on it, and that's that's some that's something I would I would just point out to anyone listening who might who might have thought about that. But um, let's see. Then I had another thought about what you I think what you were saying, Levon, about solution. Oh yeah, psychopathic um, tendencies in government. You're absolutely right that. Psychopathic tendencies are probably the the most obvious failure mode of politicians, especially since high status positions so, uh, tend to select for sociopathic tendencies. And sociopathic tendencies are the things that destroy us most quickly as a society. However, I think it's better. I, I think if we try to filter out sociopaths, I don't think that would be very effective because it's not necessarily sociopaths that hurt society. It's the sociopathic behavior that hurts society. So I think the better thing to do would be to, and more simpler thing to do, would be to put regulations in place that curb sociopathic behavior. And we've actually talked about this, Levon, uh, if you want to quickly float the idea of financial transparency. Well, yeah, yeah. No, I, I think, um, so let me, let me backtrack a little bit. Yeah. Humans evolved in hunter-gatherer context. If you've been listening to the show, you know I've said this like a thousand times already, but <laughs> we evolved in you know, small groups of like 25 to 50 people, more or less. Um, and, you know, everyone was held accountable by their neighbor. And everyone knew what everyone was doing. And it was all great. And, you know, it was beautiful. And there was no diseases. <laughs> Nothing, Nothing bad, bad ever yeah. happened. Not at all. But as, as we scaled society up, you know, the, the, the level of anonymity increased and this allowed for more sociopathic behavior uh, to be rewarded, right? So if you think in terms of game theory, because you're less accountable, you can get away with more dirty shit. You can take advantage of others. You can take advantage of the system uh, in a way that um, is far more advantageous, right? That cost benefit calculation has totally been inverted um and so that brings us now to to these governments which are now so big and so obscure and we don't know what the like what the hell is joe biden doing right now like i don't know 
Like, Mambu how much money somewhere. does he have? Like, what? Like, what the hell is going on? How much money has he taken from X Y Z? Um, if we could have more transparency, um, you you know, think think about it like an NSA, but instead of for citizens, it's for fucking politicians. If you had a literally a North Korea esque surveillance state for uh, politicians instead of the citizens, if you invert that, can we now actually hold politicians accountable, and can that? Um, swing the incentive structure for politicians to act in a way that promotes the collective good as opposed to their self-interest, the self-interest or the interest of corporations and lobbyists. Like, is is that um, is so that really the solution? Yeah. We have some of those channels that exist already, and, and I guess the ultimate question is like, would anybody care? Because there is, uh, I guess, I always make this plug. There is something called the Government Accountability Office, GAO, <laughs> and they put out transparency reports. If you can name um, a function that the government has funded, the GAO analyzes it and puts out their analysis into the public. The most prominent of these that I'm going to reference is um, – well, th this wasn't directly affiliated with the GAO, but it was an another inspector general type office. was called SIGAR. Uh, the Special Inspector General for Afghan Reconstruction. Um, th this was an office stood up like a couple of years after the U.S. invaded Afghanistan. And from day one, they openly published like their analysis predicting uh, what was going to happen when the U.S. pulled out. Right? It was all out there. And that that was kind of the comical thing watching like the New York Times and the Washington Post scramble like when we withdrew at the start of the Biden administration, everything kind of hit the fan in Afghanistan, but it was all out there. It was all transparent. All of the information was there. Same goes for like inspector general reports related to the status of Native Americans in the United States, right? Their healthcare infrastructure is crumbling. You know, they can't get, you know, effective um, treatment in advance of pregnancies on reservations because it's underfunded and collapsing. Like everything is out there. Nobody really gives a shit. So, Oh, there goes the cat. There goes the cat. Um, the, the question is, if we inundate the public with more information and more transparency, is anybody going to give a shit? Is anybody going to pay attention? So uh, I'll, I'll let you respond to that soon, Alex, but I just want to get my two cents in real quick. So it, the, you know, the types of transparency or um, – yeah, the, the type of transparency that you kind of gave examples of, uh, Andre, and again, I'm not fully knowledgeable on this, so do correct me if I'm wrong, but those are kind of like policies and actions that the government has taken, and you know, it's kind of evaluating the impact of, of those things. What I am actually, and I think that's great, and I think that should be transparent. People, we, we should try to find a way to get people to pay attention more to those things, absolutely, but... I guess what what I'm referring to is more so the transparency when it comes to um, the individual actors in government, right? Like your your, your congressman, mm -hmm. um, your, your president, uh, and also lobbyists, and even people uh, you know high up in corp in corporations. Um, 
that all that activity, you know, I, I don't think it should just be limited to government officials mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. the problem is they're being corrupted by non-government officials, right, as well. So I think the financial transparency that, uh, Alex, you and I have discussed, I, I think maybe you could frame that as above a certain tax bracket we need to know we need to know where the money is going wh like what shape it takes uh and who's doing what with it right um it, it it's kind of like just following the money right um if we can figure out how the money is being spent um and who is who is like funding the worst things I mean, to some extent, we know it's it's tricky, right? Because even if you try to hold a corporation accountable, like it's still kind of like this vague thing, like it's this this and this corporate entity. But like, we really need it fine grained. We need to know what individuals are doing what, and and that's obvious. It's very difficult to try to figure out. Okay, like how could we possibly even achieve such a level of transparency? Um, I um, if I. If I may. But yeah, Alex, please help me out here. <laughs> yeah, uh, just to quickly, I'll jump on that in just a second. But I did a quick Google for the uh, Government Accountability Office, and it looks like a great organization. However, it seems mostly focused on how taxpayer dollars are spent yeah. at the government level. Yeah. Whereas I think uh, Levon is taught, and, and he and I have discussed this uh, on our own, but the idea the idea we've batted around is the idea of every public official. If if you're going to be a public servant, then your all of your financial records need to become public. Okay. Yeah. Uh, every yeah. single dollar you spend as an individual, every dollar you receive as an individual, uh, you you get no privacy. Um, you every, everything financially is is open to the public, and that is the cost you pay for being a public official. And I mean, in some um, senses, we have something like that you know with you can see who donates money to campaigns things along those lines but yes a heightened version of that 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 yeah, makes sense I, yeah yeah but do, do we thing. see the pack money like the doesn't citizens united allow for kind of unlimited and untransparent you know there are so many loopholes that allow you to obscure money and it's yeah. legislation in the past like 20 years has definitely made it a lot harder um, to, to, to kind of get a nuanced perspective on who takes money from where. Uh, but but there's still like semblances of it remaining, but it's being chipped away uh, by every administration in the past. Like in, in recent memory, in, independent of being Republican or Democratic, it, it's kind of making it a lot harder to, to have a lens on accountability for these individuals. So yes, like if you're elected into office, you enter into a point in a position of hyper scrutiny. And if at the end of your term, you don't accomplish what you said you promised to do, you get executed. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I like that. No, but, I, but just a little caveat, like not again, not just the government official. If you are um, in a position in a corporation where you are making above a certain amount of money, um, then I think the same should apply to you because it's not, it's not about government, you know, it, per se. It's about power, right? Like that that's the fundamental concern here. Like what are the people in power with the most influence doing? And the thing that's common between all these people is that they have a fuck ton of money. 
-hmm. So we have to therefore follow the money, but we can't follow the money if, if these things aren't transparent. So the proposed solution is make the finances of the most influential people, the hyper agents, right, that exist today, like make that transparent. And let's, how about this? Let's create a, a, a social media app that exposes the government, right? Like let's create a, some, some sort of app where this is, it's trivially easy to see, oh, Joe Biden got funds from this corporation and this person in this corporation is finding like anti-climate propaganda or not. I mean, you would never have it that clean, but like, you know, they're funding this organization, which we know is responsible for anti-climate propaganda, blah, blah, blah. Like, it, yeah, it's like a social media platform that injects like a graph database into it, basically. Where, where you... I, I think so. so. I mean, again, the, the logistics of this and actually trying to implement it obviously is beyond, you know, the scope of my competence. But it's not um, I, I don't with, with the level of technology that we have today, I don't think it's impossible. And I think. I think if things continue to get bad enough politically and when it comes to other existential issues, we might have enough political willpower to have someone or have Congress initiate something like this. Although, I mean, if I mean you, it would if take you follow, something. It would take something if, for Congress to do something like this that is in in like against their self-interest to such a massive degree. Yeah, they can't even like get their heads together on like stock <laughs> right. trading. And it, yeah. Like, right, right. Yeah. So if you, it's tricky. I mean, if you love on, all you got to do is throw in some large language model buzzwords and you can get an investor pitch. Right. Yeah. This is going to be an AI-fueled transparency initiative taking into account the latest approaches to rapid data analysis. All right. Pack yeah, your you bags, go. boys. Yeah, We're going Andre's to Silicon Valley. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's the biggest hurdle with any of this is you have to first get the current uh, representatives to sign off on all this and voluntarily give up very a lot of rights. And that is um, it's a multipolar a, trap. Which we're to to in order to solve multipolar traps, we're trying to solve multipolar <laughs> traps. Right. Well, like, I mean, it, I mean, it, 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 it also sounds like we're trying to solve these problems within the system in which we're living in, right? Playing by yeah. whatever pre-established rules there are. What if mm -hmm. we just created in like a, a group of? Um, I'm trying to like really be careful about a phrasing this. A group of hyper agents, bro. A, a group of <laughs> like-minded, concerned citizens <laughs> to to to, to get together. And like and we will, we will meet every Friday with cloaks and candles. Right, with like a ceremonial sword. Yeah. Um, no, but like what it's if come this... full circle. It's yeah. come full circle, Andre. It's it's the hyper agents. We need we're, fucking we're recreating the Freemasons. Yeah. Um Okay, fine. I'll concede. <laughs> we do need hyper agents with the caveat that maybe this is more of like a grassroots type of thing. Maybe we, we find the hyper agents. Less Instagram, more like local town hall where we take the best practices from what Alex was describing, like the original services that religion provided, right? Kind of this this uh, point of communication and common ground with one another. We take the, the theoretical foundations of Levan's like tribal argument that we hold one another accountable. And we implement an, uh, sort of an organization that can start pushing for some of these changes top up, bottom up. 
right? Um, and then, yeah, this turns into like a CDDC think tank and we just kind of fail in our own, you know, we become exactly what that which we, hmm. we loathe. The cycle Either, uh, continues. Yeah. Yeah. Long enough to see yourself become a so, so I, I, I've got an hmm. idea here. So, you know, again, thinking about hyper agents and thinking about like the social media landscape right now and with, you know, the shift from like mainstream media to to kind of these independent sources of influence, let's say, um, that is people like Joe Rogan. I mean, people like Elon Musk, who on on X, you know, has how many followers, right? Um, I, I, I think people today more than ever um, can be influenced by anyone who manages to circumvent that YouTube algorithm, right? And unfortunately, right now, it is people that are saying the most outrageous shit for the most part. But mm -hmm. there are also people that have decent platforms that are not saying outrageous shit, that are, that are seemingly decent individuals. Um, and they are more or less hyper agents in terms of the influence that they have. So could it be that um, if we had enough like I know this sounds silly, but like if we had enough social media influencers that were interested in promoting this message, right, in promoting solutions to the meta crisis, promoting you know the idea of financial transparency for the elite, could that be enough to shift culture in a way that there is enough political willpower to actually make the changes happen? Like, so instead of them be so instead of like hyper agents acting within the political system, you have hyper agents acting at the level of culture to gravitate it towards a state where those solutions can be implemented by politicians. And I think back to episode 26 where we talked to Mariana and I think we asked her like um, and Mariana w w was like a strategist at Wikipedia and we were talking in many ways without calling it the meta crisis, we were having a similar discussion with her. And we asked her like, hey, what kind of keeps you optimistic about social media, for instance? And she talked about like how she follows like an influencer specializing in like mushrooms or something, like like going out and foraging and like learning more about like the ecosystems in which they grow in and, and like the various types of mushrooms. And it's things like that where I think back to that statement she made a lot because in many ways, maybe that is the hope here, right? Where it is focusing on like, the more um, grounded, uh, mindful, if you will, Alex, like hyper influencers who sort of channel a different level of narrative in into our consumption habits to really focus on like, yeah, you know, like I'm going to follow like a cabinet maker who is going to teach me about making my own furniture and like harvesting wood in, in, in like a sustainable man, like things along those lines that, yeah, we use the channels we have now. But we we inject it full of things that will bring us away from the never-ending cycle of consumption and and hopefully shift the direction in which things are heading. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Mariana is actually a good friend of mine. Oh, uh, of course. And, yeah, you guys are. All, yeah, and, yeah. Yeah, and <laughs> it sounds like she hit one of the things that I was going to say. So I will let her have that. Um, another potential cultural shift that uh, is actually kind of relevant to why I'm here, 
yeah, people in the audience might be wondering, well, who is this guy and why is he qualified to talk about any of this? <laughs> and I, I happen to be the organizer for the Kansas City Rationalists uh, group. And the Rationalist community is an international community, primarily online based, but there are uh, pockets of, of uh, in-person meetup groups and physical organizations. Just tell and, us what pills you're selling, man. Just yeah, just come on, bro. What are yeah. the supplements? So, come on. So the rationalist community <laughs> is a group of people who are interested in basically becoming hyper agents and be making better decisions, becoming better, more internally aligned, um, figuring out what your goals are and how the world works, so you can more effectively accomplish your goals and not get in the way of yourself, overcoming bias, that kind of thing. To be clear, I don't think they frame themselves as like hyper, trying to become hyper agents. I think that framing was like a little, it made it sound a little cultish, you know. But, uh, that's, that's the Schmachtenberger so, lens, yeah. Well, yeah, that's the Schmachtenberger lens on the, on, the, on the rationalist community. But honestly, it, they don't need my help to seem culty to outsiders. So I'm, I don't feel bad about that. Um, and it's a community of people that are interested in raising the sanity waterline. And if you think of sanity as just self-awareness and good decision-making, uh, and then you think of the average level of that across society, it's really low, unfortunately, uh, a lot lower than we would like it to be. And the idea is that if, if we can teach ourselves to be better humans, more effective people, and propagate that knowledge out to, other, to everyone we know, um, then hopefully we can raise that sanity waterline and make the world a little bit wiser and a little bit happier. So that is part of my attempt at improving the culture around wisdom and effectiveness and cooperation and truth-seeking is I, uh, I try to organize this community and discuss and, and help foster this culture of of uh, of sanity and wisdom, basically. Yeah, yeah, man. I, I, it's, it, I think it's great what you're doing. I think, um, I think the rationalist community and also, you know, effective altruists that are kind of adjacent or overlap with the rationalists, they kind of get a bad stick, you know, uh, especially with like Sam Bankman Freed and like all that. Um, which happened recently, but like from, from my experience of like talking to everyone that is, you know, a rationalist or uh, an effective altruist, I mean, th 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 these are just good people. Like it's, it's, it's so easy to be like, oh my God, like that's a cult or whatever. It's just, it's just people trying to think logically, mm -hmm. just people trying to do good. And like, you may disagree with their methods. You may think they're trying to be overly rational. And sometimes they are, but then, you know, others would argue they're not being rational by being overly rational. And then you get into the circular thing, but, um, it's, it's just people trying to do what they perceive as the right thing. And to be quite frank, you know, the fact that they're at least giving again, regardless of what you think about them, they're at least trying to do what they perceive as the right thing. And they've thought about it, right. They, they've actually taken time to try to reflect on things. And that's something that our society has a complete lack of, right? Like we're not reflecting on the fact that the iPhones that we're using took how much slave labor, 
took materials from which countries, which required slave labor to mine those materials. Like, like we could all benefit from more self-reflection and trying to, um, trying to understand what are the true costs of, of our lives and, um, what are ways we can actually try to make the world a little bit better? You know, mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. not about, you know, we don't need to all try to run for president and, and, and change things that way. Like, what are the little things that you can do? Because it is those little things that can over time compound and create a cultural shift. Like you, you talk about, you know, maybe someone who's a vegan and they want to eliminate factory farming. Like is the best way. Let, let me reframe that. They aren't going to stop factory farming by becoming a vegan themselves, right? Like the, you know, any vegan would, would surely admit that. However, through everyday interactions, people ask them, oh, why are you a vegan? Why this? And that little, that bit of conversation can over time influence others. It can lead to a, a broad shift in culture. Um, but it requires everyone to to think like, okay, what, um, you know, what can I do that, although it seems hopeless, is intrinsically a good thing. Um, but anyway, I'm kind of meandering at this point. I mean, and so. Alex, you mentioned that you lead a particular chapter of this. Is there a level of, of connection between various rationality or rationalist groups uh, across the United States? Do they talk to each other? Is there like a formalized understanding of what these groups do? Or is it just kind of a individual nerve cell, so to speak? Yeah, it's, it's, it's what very What do you call informal. them? In nerve cells, <laughs> nerve cells, individual nerve cells. Yeah, like individual neurons in a brain. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I know. I, know. Uh, I, just, I got like one uh, left, man. Like, come on, <laughs> let me alone here. Uh, informally, there's not like a rationalist.org that tells you how to run meetups, but there is a website called Less Wrong. Uh, it's just a, it's a, it's a forum where people who are interested in these ideas can go and talk about them and write their own individual blog posts about things that they've been thinking about. And then from there, the the diaspora of, of the rationalist community, the the common knowledge has kind of evolved naturally and organically from that and branched off into a bunch of smaller communities like Discord communities, uh, uh, other organizations that were, uh, uh, are unto themselves, that kind of thing. But there is, there does, there is a common thread of understanding mm -hmm. that everyone has read Many, many of the similar, many similar books. And they tend to consume the same kind of media that's about improving the way you think. And they they tend to be science fiction buffs. There's a lot of there's a lot of autistic people. The community. Um, You're really like, selling it of, now. You're really yeah, selling yeah, it now. Yeah, we're we're, we're right at home. Yeah, yeah, right. Want to be part of a bunch of nerds uh, <laughs> who are trying to make the world a better place. Yeah, I, I could easily see this becoming like part of some sort of uh, conspiracy theory where these groups are going to start getting targeted by like all right dweebs. It's just like, oh, yeah, there's like mysterious cabal of rational thinkers are like getting together across the country. Yep, that's that's how they that's how it happens. 
Well, I think uh, maybe let's uh, final thoughts on the meta crisis for for the time being. Like, what what are the odds that uh, we avoid uh, existential catastrophe? Andre, and then Alex. I'll pass it to Alex since he's the guest, and also okay. uh, I need to I need to get my shit together. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, existential threats in general, I I tend to align with Toby Ward's estimates, mostly because that's he's right, smarter than right. me, and uh, <laughs> I'm not going to pretend to have better numbers than him. Uh, where he estimates that there's only a one in five chance we go extinct, which honestly is. Pretty good odds. It's still significantly in our favor. And then from there, I I also tend to be an, a more optimistic person in general. Um, I have seen the people that have come before us and all the work that they've done to cure disease and solve the world's biggest problems. Um, we slashed poverty just in the past, what, 20 or 30 years? I think we halved it uh, uh, between the the eighties and the twenty tens, something to that effect. It was it's insane. The fact that we're able to this do is, so on. much good. Hold on, yeah. this is where Daniel Schmachtenberger would interject and be like, yeah. "Well, you've you've solved the poverty crisis, but you've externalized all the costs to the environment, right? Through industrial farming, depletion of topsoil, X, Y, and Z, right?" Um, all the different geopolitical things that had to happen to create that environment, uh, all the existential risks that, uh, that were a byproduct of creating um, a, again, a geopolitical state where that is at all conceivable. And so um, just want to, uh, just want to leave it at sure. that. But and, and yet, no, that's, that's, I mean, it's, it's not wrong, but I think it kind of misses the, the point though, is that, this, before we solved poverty, or I say solved, before we drastically reduced the rates of poverty, such a feat was previously nigh unimaginable. And now we are in a situation where we have to perform another feat that is nigh unimaginable. And because we have done this, done, uh, done such amazing things before, it gives me hope that we can do amazing things again, and that's that's the uh, that's the takeaway I get from that. Optimistic, so I like. I'm that. optimistic. Yeah, Andre. I I think it, it's really easy to be cynical. I think especially if you kind of base your your judgment on where things are heading off of how the news has been unfolding, um, and how global events have been unfolding. I, I think that there are a lot of problems that again are compounding and i don't really see anything changing in the near term especially i mean we we talk a lot about you know the, the deployment of ai the rise in social media addiction epidemics of loneliness i think these things are going to consistently get worse but i think on an individual basis there is a clear path forward right and there are options for people to um improve their lives in their own ways. And I think the more people work on themselves, the greater chance there are they're going to reach out to one another and, and try to maybe engage each other in, in more helpful and healthy manners. So I think maybe I have faith in humans, mm. but I'm a little bit cynical in humanity as, mm. as a collective. So that's interesting. I have less faith in humans, but I have faith <laughs> in some humans. And so the, here's, here's the way I like to think of it. If the, 
if the impact and the consequences of, of what we've been doing, those, if those negative impacts um, come to light sooner than, um, sooner than if they were to get to a point where it would be kind of like the damage would be like totally irreversible. Um, if those problems come to light, I think humans are smart enough to recognize the dangers that they genuinely pose. And I think there are enough of us to properly coordinate and come to a solution that at least mitigates some of the damage uh, from the metacrisis. Because I do think we are at a point where that there has been there, there have been certain things like, like microplastics, for example, right? That, that they're just not going away, and it's going to take it's going to take something to like reverse that. We're not, we're we're not going back to you know how things were ten thousand years ago anytime soon. But I think humans, you know, given their capacity to invent crazy shit, the iPhone, go to the moon, like our ability and our intelligence, I think our ability to coordinate and our intelligence, I think are sufficient to come up with solutions to to these multipolar traps i think it's just a matter of like are those signals going to be bright enough early enough for us to act and i'm hoping that they will be um but that's all it is is (laughs) kind of a hope um we'll see what happens but um yeah anyhow plenty Plenty more to discuss. I'm sure we'll we'll uh, discuss the uh, meta crisis again. Um, I think maybe one last thing. Yeah, yeah. Go to ahead. discuss would be like, what is the takeaway that people can can get from this? Like, Hell what yeah. Is, Hell what yeah. then? To, to use a biblical uh, term, uh, phrase, what then shall we do? Um, what are people just supposed to be cynical and uh, despair about all this, or? Is there something that they can... What is uh, to be done? Yeah, exactly. Um, And the first thing that comes to my mind is a question that uh, came up in a conversation between uh, Daniel Schmachtenberger and uh, John Verveke, who was a uh, philosopher. I think I'm pronouncing his name right. And John Verveke once asked his students... Like, where do you go to get your knowledge? And they would, they would spout off the various books or podcasts they listen to. Then he asked them, where do you go to get your wisdom? And most people didn't have a good answer for that. And whatever that means to you, I would encourage everyone to think about that question. Like, how do you learn and foster that sense of wisdom, that long-term thinking, that engagement with the world? that presence in the moment, the, the restraint required to not do the most selfish thing. Like that is, I think, the most important single takeaway. I have others, but I would want, I don't want to inundate everyone with those. Oh, I, I've, and, I've got a better one than that. Yeah. Um, oh, okay. Go okay. watch a bunch of Daniel Schmachtenberger videos on YouTube. <laughs> that too. Highly recommend it. 
uh, or if you uh, if if you want a primer and you don't want to listen to fifty hours of Daniel Schmachtenberger talking, the meditations on Moloch blog post I, I mentioned is yeah. A, we'll is link a- we'll link that. Um, I've, I've been taking notes of some of the authors that that you mentioned throughout our conversation. I think will be of value to kind of provide like a a very brief like reading list if anybody's curious on kind of exploring this a bit further. And I mean, I, I've been really intrigued as Livon has participated in that, some of the stuff in, 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 uh, on his own time, but um, exploring like rationality discussion groups, I think is a fascinating um, yeah, avenue a for these thing. things. All right. Well said. Well, uh, yeah. Uh, anything else to add, Alex? Uh, do you want people to reach you or do you not want people to, to reach <laughs> Anything you? Anything you want to plug? Any writing of oh. yours? Any, any... any supplements? Maybe? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The time is I yours. Mean... If you're going to give me the opportunity to plug something, I actually started an organization called the Guild of the Rose. The Guild which of the is a rap, The Rose, as in a compass rose or gotcha. a rose in a rose garden. Uh, it is a rationalist organization that's dedicated to uh, producing hyper agents. It's a workshop themed uh, educational community that's where people go and they participate in various activities and uh, classes that are themed around better decision-making, internal introspection, uh, uh, fostering uh, social connection, that kind of thing. We even have a workshop on overcoming Moloch-ian multipolar traps and those kinds of forces. And if anyone is interested, they can check us out at guildoftherose.org. I fucking knew you were selling something. I fucking knew it. <laughs> it is actually completely free to join. Uh, you do not have to pay us a single dime. There, is, there are optional uh, paid uh, tiers if you want them, but uh, it's not required in the slightest. And if there's anything you want for free, we give that out, no questions asked, in the style of Sam Harris. Yeah, this, this is the good antidote, antidote good of uh, Andrew Tate's real world. This is- <laughs> <laughs> yes. Beautiful. Excellent, Alex. Well, thank you for your time. Uh, I think we had a very fascinating discussion. Um, I'm sure I'm speaking for Levon too, but but I, we would love to have you back on the show to kind of keep these discussions going and to to learn how to better resist nihilism. Yeah, absolutely. And I have a lot of thoughts on nihilism too. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Alex. We'll see you next okay, time. Guys. I'll see you next time, guys. Bye now. Mm-hmm.